0: Well, we are continuing our series this morning. We've, we've just started a series in the book of First Thessalonians in the New Testament. Uh, the text is printed for you in your bulletin. We're going to be in chapter 2 this morning. A few years back, I was sitting and I was talking to a, a friend of mine. We were sitting out by our pool and I noticed that his boots looked kind of muddy. And I said, how would you get your shoes so dirty? And he said to me, oh, that's not real, that's fake mud. And you got to understand, I grew up in South Alabama. My dad's boots were frequently dirty from working in his garden or from his actual job or from going fishing. So the idea that somebody would buy shoes with fake mud on them struck me as somewhat inauthentic. And so I gave him a little bit of a hard time about this. Um, but, but recently I found out that not only can you buy fake, dirty shoes, you can buy spray-on mud for your SUV. So this will give you the authentic off-road look while you're in line picking up your kids from soccer practice or whatever. So you can, you can buy spray-on mud. And, you know, it's funny in this culture of ours that claims to value authenticity so much, how much time we spend creating images for ourselves curating our uh, facebook feed so it's 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 hard to know what to believe about other people we even have to deal with fake news so we, we just like a lot of times we don't know what is true and in that environment it's it's very easy for us to get cynical about other people and cynical about institutions especially cynical about the church Uh, People are cynical about the Catholic Church because of the way they handled priests accused of pedophilia. People are cynical about TV preachers because they always seem to be flying in these big fancy jets. And Joel Osteen didn't help this image any when we all know they didn't initially open their church after Hurricane Harvey. And so we get cynical about all these things. People are cynical about evangelicals because they say that we put political gain and political power against sometimes against the actual teachings of the scripture and so people become cynical about the church and so my question is how do we convince people that we actually believe what we say we believe how can we hope as as a church to come across as authentic and genuine in a very cynical world so that's what we're going to think about this morning and we're going to try to get at that from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. I'm actually just going to read verses 1 through 12 here, but this is God's Word. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you is not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we see glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaimed to you the gospel of God. You were witnesses in God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Let me pray for us. Father, help us as we look at the scriptures uh, this morning to draw from them uh, what it means to live our lives as believers authentically before a watching world. Uh, help me to communicate this clearly. Help us to give attention. Uh, work in our minds and our hearts as well we ask in christ's name amen so as we kind of this is like a, feels like kind of a weird passage um there are a couple of views about why paul writes what he's writing here in these verses in chapter two one view is that paul is defending himself against actual charges that were made against him if you read acts chapter 17 he faced a lot of opposition while he was proclaiming the gospel in Thessalonica, another view is that the world of his day had a lot of traveling philosophers and teachers, and you could get kind of cynical about these people because it often seemed like they were just in it for the fame or the notoriety or the money that they weren't really genuine. That their message was just a means to the to an end, and so maybe that Paul is just kind of heading that kind of thought off at the pass. But either way. He's concerned here to demonstrate the authenticity of his ministry and his message. And so what I want us to do is to think through what we can see in this. uh, Think through how we can also demonstrate the authenticity of our ministry of the gospel and the message we bring as well. So three things I think we can see here. Um, Boldness, integrity, and affection. Boldness integrity, and affection. First of all, boldness. Look at verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Uh, Paul says, look, even though we suffered and we were shamefully treated when we preached the gospel at Philippi, we continued to preach the gospel, and then we came here and we preached the gospel, even though we were facing opposition here as well. Um, Imagine that you're a politician and that you've been promoting a certain idea for a long time, or you're a teacher and you've been wanting the the school board to change a policy for, for a long time. But suddenly, there's opposition to your position. If you don't continue to labor for your position, if you change in midstream, people will begin to doubt your authenticity. They'll begin to wonder, well, did, did you really actually hold that position at all? Uh, on the other hand, if you don't change your position, even if you hold to it in the face of opposition... Uh, even if you hold to it, especially in the face of suffering, to say no, I'm going to, I'm going to continue to live this way. I'm going to continue to proclaim this, even though I'm being attacked for it. Then that lends a certain degree of authenticity to what you're saying. Uh, Hugh Latimer was a minister who was once preaching before Henry the Seventh, and the king thought that Latimer had been a bit too bold in his message one Sunday. And so he said, I want you to come back here and preach again next Sunday. And I don't want, I don't want this same kind of stuff out of you. And I want you to apologize for being offensive last, this, today. I want you to do that next Sunday. So Latimer went home and he came back. And, and this is how he started the, his sermon the next Sunday. And he's kind of talking to himself, but he's talking out loud so that the king can obviously hear him. And he says, Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore, take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. But then consider well, Hugh, dost thou not know from whence thou comest, upon whose message thou art sent? Even by the great and mighty God who is all present and who beholdeth all thy ways and who is able to cast thy soul into hell. Therefore, take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. And it's said that at that point he preached the exact same sermon he had preached the week before and he preached it with much more boldness. All right? His boldness in the face of the opposition of the king demonstrated his authenticity that he really believed what he was saying well where do we face opposition to the message of the scriptures today Uh, what are some areas Uh, society calls us hateful for talking about hell Uh, intolerant if we say jesus is the only way ignorant for speaking about a creator Bigoted for saying that gender differences exist and matter. Bigoted for saying that sex outside of a relationship between a married man and woman uh, is, is immoral. Uh, we're not team players uh, if we're unwilling to cut corners or neglect our family for the profit of the company. So we may not win friends for taking unpopular positions. But we do demonstrate the authenticity of our message when we stick with our message. When we stick with the message of the scriptures. Now, how do we do that? How do we remain bold in the face of of so much opposition? Verse 4, Paul says, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. In verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others. Uh, Paul can speak with boldness because he knows he's been approved to be a messenger of the gospel. He knows that God has entrusted him with the gospel. He knows that God is the one who tests him and knows his motives. And so because of that, he seeks to please God and not man. He doesn't need man's applause so that he can boldly carry out the task that he's been given. So, how do we speak with boldness? All right, when we're facing opposition, how do we speak the gospel with boldness? If you're called to be a minister in our denomination like Matt Patrick at Wofford or, or myself here at Grace, we've been examined and tested by the church Uh, Other ministers and elders have said, yes, we think you've been gifted and called by God to, to, to do the work of gospel ministry. So knowing that, we can go forth with confidence knowing we have that approval behind us. But there's a more fundamental approval I think we all need. There's a more fundamental approval than the approval Paul felt as an apostle or my approval to be a minister of the gospel. Uh, there's something more foundational that we all have access to, and it's found in the in the message that we speak. It's found in this gospel of God that that Paul refers to over and over again. He says, "We declare to you the gospel of God." Now, what's the gospel of of God? It's the message that we're more sinful than we ever realized. It's the message that. In Christ and through faith in in what He has accomplished for us at the cross, we can experience a welcome and love greater than we could ever imagine. Sinful and yet loved in this message of the Gospel. The Gospel says in the ultimate sense, the believer in Christ has God's approval. Not because we're smart, not because we do great things, Not because we're beautiful, not because we're moral or successful, but because we're connected to Jesus. And God has looked on us connected to Jesus and seen us in Jesus and therefore pardoned us. That means that I can go out in the world confident that God loves me, confident that I'm a part of God's family and seek to live my life in a way that pleases him. Not to earn his acceptance all over again, but because I already have his acceptance. I don't have to earn it. And that, that knowing that enables me to, to go forth in confidence. Um, my daughter Emma, you probably have heard, as a freshman at Auburn. Uh, <laughs> I may have mentioned that. And I've, I've told a couple of people that um, I'm going to stop quoting Tim Keller and start quoting Emma. Because Keller is so 2016. Um, but Emma's been writing a, a blog, and in her last blog, she was talking about sort of the struggle of leaving home in a place where you're comfortable and going to somewhere where you feel so uncomfortable, this huge college campus where you don't know anybody and, and just kind of the struggle of beginning to make friends. And I, I want to read what she wrote here. She said, I long for and await the day when I can call Auburn home. But this in-between season is difficult. Two weeks seems like a lifetime when it's spent without a place where you feel truly comfortable. But it feels like most of us, myself included, are building cages and entrapping ourselves of our own free will. It's like being a circus animal. You do all of the tricks, hoping for applause and maybe a treat, but those are fleeting and you end up back in your cage contemplating how to make the applause last longer next time. The applause, however, could never last long enough. No matter how impressive of a trick you perform, you are shunted back into your cage at the end of the day. We don't need more applause. We need someone to free us from the cage. The irony is that Christians have already been freed from the cage, but we don't know how to live without it. Imagine an invisible fence. Even if you dig up the wires, the dog is still afraid to cross it. Even if the outside is infinitely better than the inside. Leaving our cage seems impossible because we've been there for so long. What do we live for if not for the applause? I suppose the answer would be the one who freed us from the cage. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery, Galatians 5.1. If we're free, why do we spend so much time pretending we're still in our cages? Why do I spend so much time trying to get applause through my intelligence or humor or morality? Maybe it's because I so want it to be about me. I don't want to give God the glory he deserves. I want my applause. And if I make it all about God, he might ask me to do some scary, uncomfortable things that I will never get any applause for. In this culture where the image you put forth tends to be more important than who you are inside, good deeds are only to be done if they enhance who people think you are. What's the point of doing something if you don't gain anything from it? Why put yourself in a difficult situation where there will be no applause? But what is applause when compared to his love? I think that must be my refrain because it is all too easy to believe that people will make me happy. I want to search out the people who will be best for me, who will best serve my interests. But God calls me to love everyone he puts in my path. Maybe they won't be my best friends, but that does not mean they are any less worthy of my attention. God doesn't look at people and say, what can you do for me? He loves them, even if, especially if they're weak and have no good of their own to bring to the table. That's why he loves you. So why would we not extend that love to other people? See, if if you're busy every day like coming out of your cage trying to perform for everybody like a circus animal, trying to win applause for yourself, you'll never be free. You'll never really love other people. You'll just be performing for them. And you'll never be able to speak with boldness before anybody because you're so trapped by what they think of you. But if you know God's love for you in Christ, that frees you to, to, to live with authenticity and to speak out with boldness. And at, at the same time, you remember that it's God who saved you. That you didn't save yourself. You'll speak not with an arrogant boldness that says, you know, God hates you or whatever, but with a humble boldness that says, me too. Me too. The, the message that I'm speaking I need just as much as you do because I need this Jesus just as much as you do. Well, the first way we demonstrate the authenticity of the gospel message is through boldness. The second way is through our integrity. Uh, Verse 3, and and I'll kind of paraphrase these. Paul says, "Uh, what we told you is the truth. We didn't have impure motives. We weren't trying to trick you. Uh, verse 5, we never came with words of flattery. We weren't doing this out of greed. Verse 6, we weren't in it for the glory. Verse 10, you were witnesses about how holy and righteous and blameless our conduct was towards you. Um, I, I'm not going to break all those down. You can, you can go back and think about those individually. But if you add that all up, that that is a life of integrity. That Paul and Timothy and Silas's lives, the, the lives they lived were in line with the message they spoke. And the way they presented that message even demonstrated their integrity. Uh, William Salatan is a, is a writer for Slate uh, online, and he, he's an atheist, and he recently wrote uh, a piece titled, Good Religion, What I Learned About Faith from the Remarkable Michael Cromartie. Uh, Cromarty recently passed away. He was the founder of the Faith Angle Forum which sought to bring journalists uh, and, and professors and teachers together to talk about faith and politics uh, and society. And Salatan, he wrote this whole article because even though he's an atheist, he saw something incredibly attractive in Michael Cromarty's life. And he, he was almost writing, and he said, to, almost to re- repent for not having engaged him more and talked to him more because he saw such a beautiful life. And one of the things that attracted him, uh, he highlighted, was Cromarty's integrity. His integrity. Uh, people notice believers and whether we live our lives with integrity. Whether we call out all types of sin or just harp on certain types of sin. Whether we actually love the poor and the widow and the refugee are simply seek to live out kind of a baptized version of the American dream where we get as much as we can and withdraw from all of the difficult people around us. They notice when the church seems more concerned with passing the plate than doing for the least of these. They also notice when we do good things. Uh, There was an article in USA Today just about a week ago that said Faith groups provide the bulk of disaster recovery in conjunction with FEMA. Like there are Samaritans preserve tons of work that FEMA is like farming out to faith groups. And that that gets noticed. When we live lives of integrity in the school, in the home, in the workplace, that's noticed. When we do the right thing, even though it might cost us in the short run, that's noticed. Um, It's noticed when we live lives of integrity and it's noticed when we don't there's a movie several years ago many of you've heard me use this story before it's called the great kahuna and it's got danny devito and kevin spacey and some other guy who i can never remember his name And the other guy is a is a young employee Uh, devito and kevin spacey are traveling salesmen the other guy's a young employee who started working with him who's a christian and one night he's kind of learning the ropes they're in a hotel and they send him out to close the deal with this guy they've been trying to sell their product to and he goes out and he spends the whole time basically trying to have an evangelistic encounter with a guy and talking about the bible and it's good as far as it goes but he never gets around to actually trying to close the deal and so he comes back into the hotel room and he they say well did you close the deal no why and he explains what happened and Danny DeVito looks at him and he says you have no integrity You have no integrity. And he had actually lost a chance to talk to them about this gospel he believed because while he was out supposedly doing his job, they were in the hotel room having built a relationship over 20 years having a really deep conversation about God but with nobody to direct it. And here's this believer who they don't want to listen to anymore because he hasn't demonstrated integrity in his work. He didn't do his job well. um, John Calvin said that our jobs are a post assigned to us by God. That that what you go and labor at every day, that's no small thing. That is a post assigned to you by job. So whatever that is, whether you are a student, whether you're a garbage man, whether you're an electrician, whatever it is, when you do your job with integrity, it lends authenticity to to this gospel that we proclaim. Boldness, integrity, uh, affection. Uh, When we love others well, it lends authenticity to our message. Look at verse 7. But we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And then verse 11, For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to live, excuse me, to walk in a manner worthy of God. Gentle like a nursing mother, exhorting like a father, sharing our lives with you. And if you can, wanted to kind of sum that all up. It's it would be sort of we we shared the gospel and our lives with you as we spoke the truth to you in love. We shared the gospel in our lives and we spoke the truth to you in love. I was talking to a couple of you this week and you were telling me how in in one of your former churches, uh, how much the pastor and his wife, what you remembered about that was how they loved on you. Well, you didn't say hey they, they preached he preached this great sermon on whatever and no, they remembered how well you were loved by them. We we share not just the gospel, but our lives as well. I think it's one of the beautiful things about RUF is that we send Matt and Patrick to the campus, uh, Matt and Patrick, Matt, Patrick, and Ivy to the campus um, where they actually kind of, they they live in that world, so to speak. They They share the gospel, but they share their lives with students at Wofford as well. And so we also have to share our lives with one another. Have to be plugged in to one another. Um, let me just kind of encourage you, if you're not in a community group, that's a great way to be plugged in with other people at Grace and to share your life with them. And if you're not in a community group, then you need to figure out ways to connect to other parts of the body. But it's not just within the church that we need to be doing that. We've got to figure out how to do that outside the church. And that's one of the things we we talk about. Some have talked about some in our strategic planning meeting. What does that look like to share our lives with the people that we're actually trying to reach? You know, I, I think that looks like having a wide open door in our homes. I think that looks like eating lunch with a coworker who you have nothing in common with, instead of retreating to your cubicle and, and watching Netflix for twenty minutes or, or, or whatever you do. That that we get outside and we get to know and share lives with people who look at the world differently than we do. We got to think about how we do that as as a church. I mean, what if we partnered with groups that we don't have that much in common with? What if we partnered with like the atheist tree huggers of America uh, to clean up the Cottonwood Trail? Like, there's something we could do in common, right? There's a there's a shared thing where we actually are building connections with people that look at the world differently than we do. But but what we tend to do instead is like, well, they're atheists. I'm not going to do anything with them because they're fundamentally opposed to our message. And so we just kind of retreat into our Christian bubble. And we don't share our lives with anyone who thinks differently than we do. Um, genuine affection is seen and shown When we are willing to share our lives with other people, when we care about the things going on in their lives, and that lends authenticity to our messages, I I care about you. I want to show you the love of Christ, uh, even though you don't agree with the way I look at things. When I was in uh, high school, our our basketball team, as we usually did, lost in the first round of the playoffs. And uh, on the way back one night, we ran out of gas. The bus ran out of gas. We were like a half a mile or a mile from the, from the garage. And I guess they didn't worry about lawsuits as much in those days. So they just told us to get out of the bus. And we pushed the bus um, the rest of the way to the station. And you would think, you know, it's, it's midnight. Um, you know, we just lost... This would probably put us in a bad mood. Actually, it was kind of a bonding experience. It kind of helped you see, okay, we're taking things a little bit too seriously. But that's usually not what happens when you run out of gas, is it? It's usually horribly inconvenient. You're, you're, you're angry, you're upset, you're, you're inconvenienced, all of that. Even more so when not only is um, the tank in our car out of gas, but when we're out of gas. When we're emotionally and spiritually running on fumes Um, when our tank isn't being filled by the love of God demonstrated to us in the gospel when when we're running on fumes like that I'm not going to speak with boldness because I'm going to care way too much about your applause I'm going to want your applause to fill me up because I'm not being filled by God I'm not going to speak with boldness I won't live with integrity because instead of turning to God, I'm going to turn to my pet idols to try to find some life from them. I won't treat you with affection because you're not doing what I want and filling my tank like I want you to fill it right now because I'm not being filled by God and I need you to do it and you're not cooperating. And so I'm not going to treat you with affection. The way we live lives that authenticate this gospel is That we speak. The way that we become people who speak with boldness and integrity and affection. Is to be people who are being filled with the message of the gospel itself. Ourselves. Before we speak it to others. Let me pray for us. Father, I I pray that we would know well uh, this gospel of God. And that we would find in it the resources that enable us uh, to speak and to live with boldness and integrity and affection. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.